This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. The pace of technological advancement is accelerating, while the pace of its adoption is increasing. As we advance through the age of the Internet of Things and autonomous cyber-physical systems, the nation may become more vulnerable to its adversaries. It is within this context that the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, through the thoughtful and efficient use of science and technology, works to help ensure the nation's security from border security to biological defense to cybersecurity. DHS's Science and Technology Directorate, S&T, is at the forefront of integrating R&D across public and private sectors and the international community to meet Homeland Security mission needs. Science and technology are essential to fulfilling the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's missions effectively, efficiently, and safely while addressing emerging challenges and seizing certain opportunities. What are the strategic priorities for DHS's Science and Technology Directorate? What is the purpose of the National Conversation on Homeland Security Technology? How is DHS building a strong and healthy leadership culture within the S&T Directorate? I will explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Dr. Reggie Brothers, Undersecretary for Science and Technology at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Dr. Brothers, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Angela Carrington. Angela, welcome back. Thank you, Michael. So, Dr. Brothers, would you define the mission of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's Science and Technology Directorate, S&T, and how has its mission evolved to date? Thank you. Um, so, I like to say our, our, our mission is to um, use the tools of, of, of technology and, and those of science to um, help make our country, our communities, uh, our people more secure. And I think the reason why that's changed over time has been because the the way we do research, the way we do innovation in this country has fundamentally changed over, over time. And we can talk about that. Uh, I want to understand the operational scope of your portfolio. Uh, how is it organized? What's the size of your budget? The number of folks that work or report to you? And do you have a geographical footprint that expands the country and beyond? We have a uh, research and development budget, um, about 400 to $450 million per year. Uh, about 1,000 people. And while um, many of our staff are located here in the D.C. area, we have laboratories and universities across the country. And Dr. Brothers, can you tell us more about your specific area and your role as a DHS Undersecretary for Science and Technology and kind of what your specific responsibilities and what are the areas under your purview? Sure. So all this comes from the Homeland Security Act of 2002. Uh, where this my role was was authorized. Essentially, I'm the science advisor to the secretary and the deputy secretary. I'm responsible for the oversight 
of the department's research and development uh, portfolio. I'm also responsible for operational test and evaluation. Uh, we have uh, 11 centers of excellence, uh, 13 bilateral relationships with our international partners. Uh, we oversee the Safety Act. We work in export control. So there's a tremendous variety of things that we do. If you start thinking about the range, the diversity, uh, the scope of the missions defined for the department in our Quadrennial Homeland Security Review, we are essentially responsible for developing capabilities for our components, Coast Guard, Transportation Security Administration, uh, Secret Service, FEMA, uh, et cetera, to help them do their jobs better and make a difference in securing the homeland. So, Dr. Brothers, with that kind of a portfolio and the expansiveness, what are some of the top challenges you face, and how have you sought to address those challenges? So, at the top level, uh, one of the biggest challenges I found uh, coming into this position was the fact that um, there are different time constants uh, in terms of of the responses we have to give. So, for example, uh, there are certain things that we have to research over a longer period of time. So, for example, different types of phenomenologies for detecting explosives, for example, right? So, that can lead to a longer-term research effort. But then all of a sudden, uh, a gyrocopter lands in the White House. Uh, We are threatened with drones uh, in some ways. And you end up with these quick, as I call them, pop-ups that we have to deal with. What's challenging from a research and development um, institution's perspective is how do you manage that kind of capacity? So if you've got an investment portfolio, you have resources, you have people that are working on these longer-term research and development projects, and all of a sudden something happens, how do you develop that flex capacity? And so I think that's one of the biggest challenges I have. Another large challenge I have that's related is then within those, those priority areas, how do you prioritize those? Mm-hmm. Right. So how do you figure out, given the relative impact of different types of threats, the probability of these threats, how do you determine what you should invest in? So those are all challenges that, that we have and I'm trying to deal with. And with those challenges, a lot of times there's unanticipated surprises that come along. Can you kind of talk about what's the biggest surprise that you've encountered in your current role? Uh, the big, well, so, for example, I think there are these so-called black swan events that people talk about, mm-hmm. right? These things that are unexpected, but once you see them, you probably should have realized these things would actually happen. Some of the things that are going on, for example, in the commercial world with drones, with the IoT, uh, Internet of Things, for example, uh, can give these kinds of, these kind of events. Um, these are things that we're trying to, to track and try to, in some ways, anticipate what they could be. Um, but they all present these kind of challenges, again, because um, one of the things I've learned by being at the department is you've got this constant trade-off. And this trade-off is usually between uh, the speed of commerce, uh, between privacy, uh, security, these kinds of things. And so there's always this, this area where you have to start thinking, well, if I start developing a, a capability to make something more secure, what are the impacts to privacy? What are the impacts of civil liberties? And so it's not, it's not as easy as someone might think to make something secure because of these other types of concerns we have. So as the pace of technology increases, as the pace of technology, technological adoption increases, uh, we have to be very concerned with what does that mean as we are trying to uh, uh, not put limits on commerce, on economic gains, but how do we make people and the communities more secure at the same time? Very interesting. Can you um, can we kind of talk about your personal career path, and can you tell us how you got to your current role? Before this position, um, I was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Research, so obviously that's in the Department of Defense. Uh, essentially, that position is oversight over the Department of Defense's research portfolio, um, as well as over their laboratory enterprise. Uh, before that, I was in industry. I was at uh, BAE Systems in industry. And then before that, I was a program manager at DARPA. So then I was back in the government role. Mm-hmm. 
And before that, I was in uh, uh, Draper Laboratory. So it's a, a nonprofit laboratory. And uh, before that, I was actually in a startup company. So I think one of the things that I'm happy about and I've really enjoyed about my career thus far has been um, seeing most of the parts of what I call the S&T ecosystem. Right? So if you think about this ecosystem as industry, as laboratories, uh, as government, um, I've had the opportunity to be in uh, small industry and startup companies. I've had the opportunity to be in a large industry, the opportunity to be in our laboratories, and uh, now in, in a senior government role. So it's been quite fascinating. That's great. And it's an excellent segue into uh, getting a little insight into your leadership style and your management approach. What are some of your uh, key leadership principles and perhaps you can illustrate for us how you've applied those principles throughout your career. Sure. So I think um, the first thing I like to do um, in terms of leadership is is defining a vision. Where are we going? If I can talk about that right now, I think one of the first things we did when I came into uh, this position was to start talking about visionary goals. And I got this actually from a DARPA idea that was that I, that I read about, quite frankly, where one of the earlier DARPA directors, Dr. Heimeyer, had what he called his silver bullets. And the silver, two of these silver bullets were, um, let's make the oceans transparent and let's make aircraft invisible. So if you think about those, um, have we made aircraft invisible? Well, no. Have we made the oceans transparent? Well, no. But what have we done? Right? Well, we've made stealth, we've underwater warfare. So these are things that um, his silver bullets have led to tremendous developments because they, they push the envelope in terms of where we can go and what we can do. So I thought, well, why don't we do that here? Let's try to figure out what we can do in homeland security in terms of developing these visionary goals. And we did that. And I think what I'm really proud of is the way we did that. Right. So we, we, we said we put a group together uh, internal to, D, to S&T and said, what do you think the visionary goal should be? Let's say we, we think, what can we do in 15, 20, maybe 30 years? So we developed a list. Then we said, well, let's take that list further and talk to the rest of DHS. And we sent it out to our component leads. And they added and, and subtracted from that. They edited that. Then we said, let's go even further. And then we went out to uh, a website, and we actually asked for the public to comment on these visionary goals. We actually had 1,500 people sign up and register for this website, which I thought, quite frankly, for, for DHS S&T was pretty impressive. And we got wonderful comments back, wonderful comments. What we found was that people were really interested in security and interested in being a part of this process, which then led us to develop a national conversation on certain topic areas, which we're continuing, and actually our component leads are working with us in, in that mode. So that's, that's setting the goals part. Then the second thing I like to do is once we've set the goal is empower our workforce. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's essential. You know, how, how do we make sure that the excellent people that we have feel empowered to do their jobs? Because I and then the folks I work with in the front office, we don't have all the answers. Our great people do. So the question is, how do we best empower them to do their jobs and be enthused and innovate in the best ways they can? Third part is communication. Um, I think that you know, once you've set a goal, once you've, you've tried to give your people empowerment, it's important to allow them co- to communicate. And I think a big part of my job then is to break down barriers to that communication. Because as you know, in any large organization, you have salt silos, stovepipes, whatever you want to call them, a leader's job is to break down those, those barriers. And then I think the fourth thing is to get out of the way. All right, just get out of the way. You know, once you have, have folks know where you're going with appropriate metrics and, and, and accountability, uh, you've given them the power, you've given them the communication, the resources they need to do their job, just get out of the way. Come back when they need some help. What are the strategic priorities for DHS's Science and Technology Directorate? We will ask Dr. Reggie Brothers, Undersecretary for Science and Technology at DHS, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. 
How can DOD improve its acquisition processes? Check out the latest IBM Center report, Eight Actions to Improve Defense Acquisition. The authors emphasize the urgency of acquisition reform in DOD, given budgetary constraints and security challenges, finding that DOD will need to gain every possible efficiency while resisting the temptation to buy defense on the cheap. This report continues the IBM Center's interest in better understanding and improving the federal government acquisition process. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Reggie Brothers, Undersecretary for Science and Technology at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Also joining us from IBM is Angela Carrington. Dr. Brothers, uh, the Science and Technology Directorate within DHS plays a critical role in addressing major homeland security threats, as you've outlined. Uh, would you sort of give us a sense of your strategic vision for the department, how are you reshaping the department, the directorate, and more importantly, I understand when you came on board, you had five priorities you wanted to focus on. Could you give us a sense of what they were? Absolutely. Um, so the five priorities as follows. I, I wanted to develop a visionary goals that, that I mentioned a little bit earlier. I wanted to produce an actionable strategy. So I didn't just want to have a text that gets put on a bookshelf somewhere. I wanted something to actually lead, to, lead us to be able to do something that we need to do, lead to these visionary goals. So if the visionary goals are 15, 20, 30 years out, then what do we need to do the next five years to get there? So I want to produce this actual strategy. The third thing was foster an empowered workforce. Uh, fourth, uh, deliver force-multiplying solution to Homeland Security stakeholders. These are, these are again, our, our operational components. And then the fifth, I think very important, is energize a Homeland Security industrial base. And I say this because, as you know, the Department of Defense, which has been around for decades, has a very effective, powerful um, defense industrial base. Homeland Security doesn't have that, particularly from a research and development perspective. And I thought that... One of the roles that I want to do, one of the things I wanted to, to improve is that Homeland Security Industrial Base for Science and Technology. So those, those are really the five, the five priorities I said. And you touched on um, the visionary goals. Can you outline those goals and kind of reiterate how you got there? Yeah, sure. So the, um, again, the, these were derived from um, internal discussions, internal to, to my organization, S&T, with um, discussions with the components and then further with input from the public through a website. We have uh, five uh, the first is screening at speed, uh, security that matches the pace of life. We have tr a trusted cyber future, protecting privacy, commerce, and community. Enable the decision maker, actual information at the speed of thought. Then responder of the future, protected, connected, fully aware. And the final one is resilient communities, disaster-proofing society. I think what you can see is, is where these essentially um, transcend, they take, take the entire space of our, our mission sets, and try to say, for example, for the first one, screening at speed, security that matches the pace of life. In the simple case, going through an airport and not having to divest yourself of belts and shoes and, and things like that, right? But yet, we haven't sacrificed any security. Right? In cyber, a trusted cyber future, what's the fundamental issue in cyber? Do you trust your networks? Do you trust your devices? Uh, doubt that, right? So how do we get to that point? How do we do that? And so these, these goals were set up um, to, to drive us to, to really think hard about where we want to go and then how do we actually, and then the next step, the strategy I mentioned earlier, is how do we actually start getting there? And so with that as the jumping off point of getting there, the activity of research and development, I, I was interested, what constitutes R&D within the DHS context and how have you sought to redefine it since you've taken over? R&D has changed. I think I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier. In the 1940s, R&D really was um, 
defined by um, Dr. Vannevar Bush. And he wrote a letter, wrote a letter to uh, the president, President Roosevelt. The president asked him, you know, what should, what should the country do after World War II to continue to have the, the same type of innovation from the industrial base that, that he saw, the country saw during, during the war? Vannevar Bush wrote back a, uh, an impassioned article called Science, the, the Never-Ending Frontier. And in it, he outlined a strategy that led to the founding of the National Science Foundation, that after Sputnik led to the founding of NASA, led to DARPA. And it kind of defined the way we do R&D today. Fundamental shifts started happening uh, around 1980. A fundamental shift was the, um, the level of funding for applied research shifted from primarily from the government to private practice, to, to industry. I think that really starts changing the game as we think about it. I think the types of innovations that we're seeing in, the, in some of the smaller companies, I think, starts changing the game as well. That's not to say that we're not seeing innovation in large companies, because of course we are. But I think the point is that our job, as I mentioned earlier, to protect the country using the, our understanding of science and tools of technology, is to reach out to all the creative individuals that we possibly can. These creative individuals are now in different places. Right? They're not just in government laboratories. They're not just in universities. They're in other places. And so I think fundamentally, we have to acknowledge that fact. We have to develop avenues and pathways to get to these people. And we also have to develop ways to invest in them. And I think, you know, while we have typically used a number of different investment vehicles, it's clear that sometimes it takes too long for the operational tempo of these non-traditional performers. As such, um, we've had to think about how do we structure ourselves internally. I think there, there's, there's three different aspects of the structure. One aspect is how do we structure ourselves within S&T ourselves to most effectively and efficiently do our jobs. How do we structure ourselves within, within the DHS enterprise? Is the second one. Then how do we structure ourselves with respect to our, our outward-facing input points? Right? How, do we, how does industry reach into us? I know when I was in industry, I found it difficult to reach into DHS. And I think it's important that we figure that out. So simple things. You know, we've redesigned our website to make it easier for people to understand who to talk to, what are they interested in. Uh, in terms of, of, of investing, we're trying to experiment with different types of ways to invest in, in non-traditional companies, uh, using price challenge authorities, using so-called other transactions authorities, using ideation events, for example, um, as a way of, of telling our story. Because one of the challenges we've heard from um, industry is, what are you interested in? Right? I'm not sure we've done a very good job of telling industry of what we're, what we're interested in. I think um, in the Defense Department, you asked this question earlier about some of the differences. There's a history of industry understanding what the Department of Defense's problems are. We don't necessarily have that history here. Instead of being 60 years old at Department of Defense, we're 10 years old. So we're still developing. And I think it's important that everyone understands that. So part of our role right now is having the, the best structure internally for dealing with, as I said before, this need to have longer-term research as well as have, have flex capacity for pop-ups, these kinds of things. Have a structure within our DHS enterprise so our researchers can, can properly understand what challenges the, our operational personnel really face, not just what they think from an engineering perspective, but what they really face and what the concept of operations are so that the kinds of capabilities we developed are, are not just technically relevant but operationally relevant as well. And then how do we actually share our problems with industry and develop um, investment vehicles that work in the same kind of time frames that are effective for their own business models? Dr. Brothers, you mentioned the DHS enterprise. Can you touch on what are some of the existing challenges and capability gaps that you see in the overall Homeland Security enterprise? So I think, let me give you some broad areas. 
Um, we've just set up something we called our integrated product teams. We're actually setting those up. These integrated product teams are developed to define just what your question is. What are the capability gaps that, ag- that exist across our components? So we've set up five of these. Right? So we've got aviation security, border security, cyber security, counterterrorism, and biological threat uh, security. We have an existing work um, called our First Responders Resource Group, which develops capability gaps for our first responders, police, fire, emergency, uh, uh, medical, etc. So those are the, the, the large areas. And I think that um, you can find mo- a multiplicity of threat areas within those. But when I try to talk to industry and people that want to create with us and, and for us, those are the big areas that we're talking about. So I would like to un- sort of peel back some of those visionary goals that you outlined. And one in particular you mentioned was um, the for- delivering force-multiplying solutions as a high priority, and focusing those on high-priority areas. What are you doing in this area specifically? Uh, well, I think if you... So, so let me parse that up a little sure. bit. Part of the problem is, um, goes back to the prioritization piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have, um, as everyone does, limited funds. You know, we don't have unlimited funds for investment. But we have an extremely broad spectrum of, of, of threats and, and, and missions that we're, we're supposed to uh, service. And then when it comes to force multiplying, um, we have to be fundamentally well-connected with our components, mm-hmm. or else they won't be multiplying force at all. Right? Again, I go back to these IPTs that I mentioned earlier, the integrated product teams. But I also want to talk to the um, Pioneer program that we started. We started something called Pioneer. Uh, Pioneer program is something that is meant to get our people um, into the operational domain. Uh, one component of the Pioneer program is called Embeds. This is where we send our people to actually work and live with border protection, border patrol agents, with Coast Guard officers, with uh, transportation security officers, etc. So they can understand um, day-to-day, hour-to-hour, minute-minute, what these officers' challenges are. I think fundamentally this gets to something I like to talk about, which is user-producer innovation. I think one of the challenges that, that smart people have, that smart creative people have, is uh, to go back into their workspaces, come up, with, come up with what they think is a great idea, without having understanding of whether it's operationally relevant. So let me give you an example of that. When I was doing some work um, with Department of Defense, I found you know, people that were trying to use modern commercial cell phone type equipment for Blue Force tracking, for tracking where people, for soldiers are, for example. And it seemed like a great idea until they realized, well, you know, um, during the daytime, it's kind of hard to see the screen. It's hard for Army Rangers, for example, to use these small styluses. Of course, ruggedness is a, is a challenge. And so what turns out to be what was originally a really good idea had some serious operational challenges to it. Now, all those can be mitigated, but going in, it's a lot easier to make the most efficient use of your money if your engineers and scientists understand some of these constraints early on. And so that's what we're trying to do with this embedding program. We also have a sprint program where we put our scientists and engineers for a short period of time. With, let's say we've already done it with the Coast Guard. And then we also have something we're trying to uh, put our scientists and engineers into industry. Again, this is starting to try to foster this home security industrial base. Mm-hmm. We put them, put them in industry so they can start understanding um, the real concerns that industry has because industry is under certain constraints that many people who have not been exposed to that and have only been the government don't really understand. I think another issue we're trying to do, and I mentioned this earlier in terms of structure, is we're trying to improve our structure within the home security enterprise itself. And one way to do this is to take a model from corporate models, which t- some have um, a centralized corporate 
component, which looks at research component, which looks at cross-cutting areas of concern, of technologies. And then a lot of times these corporations will have a research and development component at each one of their business units, maybe communications, maybe platforms, uh, etc. The way this works is that the central research facility tends to be looking at more early-stage research. The business units tend to be looking at more market-facing research for the next products, for example. And then the, the corporations have been most effective actually have this rotation of their people between these outward-facing research and development organizations and the central research organizations. We're doing the same thing. And so we're setting up what we're calling our innovation centers. And we're starting, starting one with the Coast Guard to put our people with the Coast Guard and to help transition, because this is a big problem with research and development, as you know. How do we actually transition our technologies to our end users? And that's what, borrowing from the corporate, corporate industry model, we're trying to use that as, as we structure ourselves within the Homeland Security Enterprise. So, Dr. Brothers, what are you doing to identify and prioritize operational requirements and capability gaps? So this goes back to the integrated product teams, where I mentioned we have aviation security. I went through that, the list. Aviation, bio-threat bio, bio security, cybersecurity, counterterrorism, uh, first responders, and border security. And the way this works is that each one of these integrated product teams, or IPTs, is led by a component head, not S&T. And these are operational components. So that way we, we come across with cross-component priorities in these particular mission sets. Then those priorities are then sent up to what we're calling our senior research council. That is chaired by my organization, s and And then that list is prioritized. So that's how we're going um, to prioritize our investment strategies Coming up, we've just started those. We've just so that's a work in progress. And that's a great. I mean, if you could touch on that a little bit deeper, because it transitions into my next question, sort of like identifying the gaps. But how does the senior research council and your efforts sort of target and make strategic investments a high priority? How are you doing it? You can get into the how-to. So again, this is this is a work in progress. We're just starting oh, yes, this. Okay. Yeah. So we haven't started. We have not started this yet. This is IPTs were actually um, in operation under Admiral Cohen, who's one of my predecessors. So we're bring, we're resurrecting those, if you will, and uh, we expect to have our, some of our first outputs coming up uh, next calendar year. These will then be integrated. So uh, let me back up for a second. The secretary has has made a, quite an effort in what he calls his unity of effort mm-hmm. initiative. I think there's an excellent initiative that the Secretary is, is doing. Um, I think it's working well. Part of that initiative is a Joint Requirements Council. Mm-hmm. The Joint Requirements Council is set up um, with the components to develop what these joint requirements are for acquisition. We're doing a similar thing for research and development. And in that I'm uh, distinguishing between a requirements for acquisition and capability gaps. So to be clear, capability gap may be something like we need greater um, surveillance capabilities in some area. A requirement could be I need to buy a particular type of camera, let's say. So Joint Requirements Council is really concerned with requirements for acquisition. Our IPTs are concerned with capability gaps. Obviously, you can see where we're feeding back and feeding forward between the IPTs or the Senior Research Council and the JRC. So that's how, that's how we match into the acquisition process. Well, that's a great segue because that's internal to the DHS components and how you're working across the enterprise. You've mentioned this throughout the conversation, the Homeland Security Industrial Base, and I have sort of a threefold question for you. One is, how are you energizing your relationship with that base? How are you facilitating idea exchanges with that base? And more interestingly for me is, 
What are some of the new non-traditional outreach mechanisms you're using? So energize, facilitate outreach. This, again, is a work in progress. Mm-hmm. I think, um, let me give you an example. Um, we, we've started a Silicon Valley presence. Mm-hmm. The way we're doing this, quite frankly, is based on conversations that a number of us have had in Silicon Valley. And let me say at the outset, we're just starting in Silicon Valley. We realize there are many other areas of innovation. So I do want to talk about some work we're doing in Dallas and Chicago with accelerators. I'll get to that. But one way that we're having this conversation is doing an ideation event. So recently we did an ideation event or brainstorming event um, in Silicon Valley on the Internet of Things and the security of the Internet of Things in particular. Now, I think that it's important for us going forward to continue to have these kind of conversations because the more specificity that we can give creative people, the more efficiently they can help us solve these kinds of problems. So one way we're going out is with these ideation events. Another way we're going out is through prize challenges. So prize challenges, as you know, is, is, is an authority that a number of uh, government departments and agencies have. We're one of those. And we can go out with a question you know, and a problem. And one of, the, one of the questions we brought we brought up was for first responders. The question was, given the um, this market in, 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 in wearables, how can that be applied to the first responder, particularly with an understanding of their need for indoor location awareness, for an understanding of what their vital signs are, these kinds of things, communications, indoor communications. And here's what we did. So we set up a challenge in that area. We actually got a great response for that. But then we did something else. We said, you know, one thing that's very different, this gets back to your question about DOD versus DHS. Well, another difference is a lot of our products are off-the-shelf products. We don't necessarily have tremendously different technology than you'd find in the commercial world. A lot of times they've been modified for us, but a lot of times they are off the shelf. So the question comes up then, so if we have to strategically shape our shelf, how do we do that? One way we thought to do that, and again, there's an experiment, is an accelerator, right? So a business accelerators. So we said, you know, we had three questions. If we invest in an accelerator, number one, will anyone respond? Two, if they respond, will it be relevant? important responses. And three, will we be involved in investing in, in viable companies after that? So we work with um, two accelerators, one out of Chicago, one out of uh, Dallas. And coming through this program that started about a year ago, and we had kind of the final exam, the graduation ceremony, if you will, I think it was September. We had 18 companies. And so some of the results were fascinating, what they came up with. And of these 18 companies, many of them are already in discussions for uh, second round financing. So I think what we found, I think if the number, if I have the number correctly, it was like 150 companies actually applied for this. So if you think about the, fir- the three questions we asked, all of those were answered affirmatively. Right? We had 150 companies respond, so there's interest. We had 18 companies that came up with great solutions. The second question was answered. I mean, would they have relevant, important solutions? And the third question is, are they viable? Well, they're in discussions with companies for second-run financing. Well, right now the experiment seems to be working. So that's, that's another way that we're reaching out. A third way is a vehicle that the government has called Other Transactions Authority. Now, Other Transactions Authority, OTAs, were set up to provide a way to get to non-traditional companies. And these are defined as investment vehicles other than contracts, grants, and creators. That's why it's Other Transaction Authorities. And so we're we're setting up um, OTAs to do just this, to work with non-traditional companies so that we can actually get investment to them in the time constants that's important to their to their people. So those are some of the areas that we're, we're trying to reach out. What is the purpose of the National Conversation on Homeland Security Technology? 
we will ask Dr. Reggie Brothers, Undersecretary for Science and Technology at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. Government leaders and managers face major challenges today, including fiscal austerity, citizen expectation, the pace of technology and innovation, and a new role for governance. These challenges influence how government executives lead today, but more importantly, how they can be prepared for tomorrow. The IBM Center report, Six Trends Driving Change in Government, offers a path forward for government executives responding to the ever-increasing complexity and challenges they face today. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Reggie Brothers, Undersecretary for Science and Technology at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Also joining us from IBM is Angela Carrington. So, uh, Dr. Brothers, uh, would you tell us more about your R&D efforts in such key areas as uh, cybersecurity, responder of the future, and enabling decision makers? Sure. Uh, so, in our cybersecurity division, CSD, we really think of it in... Um, of investments in five key areas. Uh, the first is trustworthy cyber infrastructure. Second is cybersecurity research infrastructure. The third is network and system security investigations. Fourth is cyber physical systems, SCADA systems, those kinds of things. Then the fourth, the fifth actually is a transition and outreach. So we have a transition to practice program, which actually seeks to commercialize uh, our cyber programs. And we have, it's been very successful to date. So that's why we think about our cyber strategy. An example of what we're doing right now is, for example, the Decide program, um, which is developed by Norwich University with, with funding from us. And essentially, um, it's an exercise tool. It's an exercise tool for the financial industry. It's actually been used in, in games to understand um, just how the financial community um, can respond in the case of, of some attacks. And we actually had um, a number of uh, 500 participants from 80 financial institutions and government agencies involved in, in, in this exercise. So that's the kind of things that we're looking at, at doing. It, it, so it's across, um, you know, I mentioned cybersecurity uh, cyber research infrastructure. So what's the challenge here? The challenge is that you need some type of um, test bed to be able to exercise your, your potential solutions, to understand are these good or are they not so good, right? You, we need some way of working with, um, with government agencies, with the, with the uh, communities, to understand how well does this actually scale to their actual, uh, their actual networks. So these are all the kinds of things that we're working in cyber. I think you also mentioned um, decisions, right? So here's one of the challenges. I think I've learned this over, over some, of the, some of the work I've done, is that it's one thing to give an operator, a decision maker, some, some tools. It's another thing to help them make a decision more effectively and more quickly, so I think one of the challenges we have is, as, for example, a lot of times you see something called a common operational picture or a COP, right? Yeah. And in this, you've got a map, some kind of uh, geospatial map. You have different icons on it showing the location of people and infrastructure and different th things of interest. And so the decision makers to look at this and then figure out, what does this mean? What do I do about this? As opposed to actually giving he or she some tools that help them parse that, to dissect it, to help them understand what that actually means based on the kinds of things that are going on today. So when you start looking at some of the tools in data analytics and predictive analytics, these kinds of things, you can start coming with tools that actually help the decision maker 
make these decisions much more quickly, right? So here's an example of a decision. Let's say you have some type of natural disaster and the consequence of many natural disasters, some, some, some level of flooding. When do you tell people they should leave or not leave? How can you push that decision further to the left in time so they have more time to make a decision? How do you do that? And those are the kinds of things that we're working with to enable the decision maker. Can you tell us more about the national conversation on homeland security technology and how does it enable end users to connect directly with technology developers and kind of what are the goals of these discussions? Right. So, um, again, this came out of the um, when we were developing the visionary goals and we were almost crowdsourcing our results. A question was asked to me, you know, what do you do if someone comes up with a strange idea? And I didn't read all the results personally, but I read a lot of them. I sampled a lot of these. And what I found, quite frankly, all of them I read were thoughtful. And therefore, we realized we could really reach out to the greater community and get some good ideas. So that's what we've done. So essentially, we have a website where you can go to and, and engage in this and register and then engage in this conversation. So our first, so our first responders, our components, are using this to engage directly in conversations with creative people. So why is this important? It's important because, as I mentioned earlier, we're now in an environment where the creative people are all over the place, not just in laboratories or someplace. This enables us to have a much broader reach to get to these people, to let them know what our problems are, and to hear from them what problems that they see that we may not see, for example. So that's why it's, that's why it's important. So you touched on this, um, but what are you doing to engage the kind of the non-traditional companies and revamp existing programs to become more timely and dynamic? And how are you looking to re-engineer internal forecasting capabilities to better understand where to capitalize on industry investment trends? Okay, so there's two different things. Let me start with the first one. So I think there's, um, I talked in some detail before about other transaction authorities, right. about accelerators, these kinds of things. But the general strategic way that we're thinking about that is, one, uh, communicating what our challenges are mm -hmm. to these different non-traditional players as well as to the traditional players. I, d I don't want to downplay the importance of the traditional players. Um, but part of our biggest challenge is communicating our problems. So we're trying to find the right fora in which to communicate those challenges. And so we're choosing different ones, which we're, we're experimenting again. The second thing is once we've communicated those challenges is finding novel, useful, relevant, efficient ways of getting investment dollars to them. So that includes not just um, the investment vehicles I mentioned before, like OTAs, mm -hmm. but also how do we do a, how do we make it easier, but no less rigorous for us to go, th for us to actually solicit for the work, right? So right now we all know that um, some of the process for going through the solicitations is difficult, particularly for non-traditionals that don't have systems set up for going through this pr uh, proposal process. So right now we're working with the undersecretary management's team to try to make it easier, to come up with ways that are easier, but yet no less rigorous because we are dealing with taxpayers' money. So we have to make sure we're dealing with that most effectively. So let me talk about forecasting. This is one area that I think is, 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 is essential. Now, you can argue whether or not you can effectively forecast or predict or not, and I think that's, an, that's a discussion to have. Nonetheless, particularly when you talk about can you predict a black swan event, which by definition you couldn't. That said, what you can predict are trends. Right? You can predict trends. And so we are working with, um, uh, with our partners actually at IARPA to work with technologies that have been developed there as well as developed other places to start looking at what are some trends, whether it be in publications, whether it be um, 
uh, well, it's primarily publications, um, to figure out where things are actually going. So you know, one of the challenges I think we have is groupthink. Mm. It's groupthink. So when you talk to most technologists, you, you get a list of what are the upcoming technologies. And you find that many of these technologies are the same. Right? You'll say, well, you know, biology, uh, particularly synthetic biology. Right, some, of the, some of the CRISPR technology that those, you know, uh, recently a conference on, you know, the ethics of that. Um, you start talking about, of course, data analytics, predictive analytics, crowd com- um, cloud computing. Um, you start talking about um, artificial intelligence, deep learning. Talk about robotics, autonomy. So these are the kind of areas that, that most people are talking about and others that I think if you start compiling a list of, you know, futurist conversations, these are the kind of things you'll come up with. The question I have to ask myself is, what do we not looking at? Within this groupthink environment, what are the things that we don't know we don't know? And that's really what I'm trying to push on, because I think the things that we don't know we don't know are the things that are going to come and bite us, uh, maybe more hard than the things that we do know are up and coming. So I think um, you know, we have a, a program that we're working on right now, to, um, along with, with our other interagency partners, to uh, think about this. We're actually engaged with the, this these other communities in Silicon Valley, Austin, Boston, et cetera, to talk about these, to try to figure out what they think. Because, again, you know, the more diverse areas of thought that we get in the room, the better. And that's what we're really trying to do. Mm-hmm. Well, um, Dr. Brothers, uh, could you tell us more about the innovation centers and what are their critical functions they perform that complement the S&T mission space and strategy? And how do they operate and foster sort of an innovative or entrepreneurial culture? So the innovation centers are, are like some of the other things I mentioned, experiments. Um, we're, just, we're just starting this. This was taken from um, my, my knowledge of what goes on in some corporations um, and, and the fact that uh, we are now setting up one with the Coast Guard where we have some of our people um, with the Coast Guard at their research and development center. And what's the problem we're trying to solve? We're trying to solve this issue of how do we more quickly and effectively transition technology? How do we get it to our operational users in a form factor, um, in a package, et cetera, that really works with the way they do operations? Well, who knows that better than the operators themselves? So the best way to do that, I would argue, then is to have um, ties directly into the operational components. That's what the innovation centers are actually all about. It gives the operational folks a better um, sense of what we know, so they get a sense of the art of the possible, and we get a better sense of the operational realities um, at the edge. So um, we have been working on this for, I think, about eight months now or so. We've developed a set of um, initiatives, and um, I'm very excited about uh, seeing the results of this. And throughout our conversation, the idea of engaging uh, stakeholders, in particular industry, uh, to partner with them is very important. One of the programs I noted when I was doing the research for the interview is Titan. Could you tell us a little bit about Titan? I can. Um, so Titan um, is an effort to provide essentially a, um, a toolkit for our program managers. The reason why this toolkit is important goes back to this issue of we m- now have a much more diversified and distributed S&T ecosystem than we've ever had before, I'd argue. So this toolkit enables our program managers to reach out to our startup world, so we have ties. We work with InQtel. We have a Silicon Valley presence. Um, it allows us to tie into our national laboratories. It allows us to ta- tie into our centers of excellence, our academic institutions. So what I found was that we have these resources, 
but they're not necessarily tied together and aligned in terms of what they're doing. I think particularly now it's, it's essential that these are aligned. So that, again, we have these our visionary goals. We've developed a five-year actionable strategy. And now we have to make sure that the tools that we have, the resources we have, our laboratories, our universities, our industries, small, large, traditional, non-traditional, et cetera, are aligned in achieving these goals. So that's what Titan is all about. Titan is about allowing our um, engineers, our scientists, to have a place to go and say, well, here's the problem I'm trying to solve. What are some potential answers? If I go to the laboratory, what I find? If I go to academia, what I find, et cetera. Great. And, and, and with that, the, the story that you've, or the vision that you've outlined for uh, the S&T directorate, uh, you have various things that are going on. And I wanted to, you know, get a sense of educating our listeners as to many of these programs. And one of them is APEX, the APEX program. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about how that balances your portfolio? And then how is it complemented by the technology engines? So um, one of the challenges I think that, that we have, and I mentioned a couple of times, is prioritization. Once you prioritize them, um, you have to have a critical mass of investment dollars to actually make a difference. Again, we have about $450 million of annual investment. How do we do a, a, the best job we can of establishing critical masses in the, most, in the most critical areas? That's what APEX is all about. So APEX says, given the visionary goals we have, given the input we're getting from our stakeholders, what programs should we have that we're going to invest a, enough money in to actually make a difference, to really make a difference? So, for example, we have, and you, you'll, you'll, you'll see the tie into our visionary goals, we have border situation awareness, next generation first responder, real-time bio-threat awareness, next generation cyber infrastructure, checkpoint screening at, fee- at speed, rapid, which is actually about flooding. I mentioned flooding example earlier. And there are air entry and exit reengineering, which is a border enforcement analytics program. So there are, those are APEX programs. Now, you actually asked about the engines. If you think about um, our mission areas, you can start thinking about different areas that, of technology that are cross-cutting across the capabilities that we could develop in those mission areas. That's what the engines are all about. So if you think about a, um, if you think visually, and on verticals you've got our apex programs, then across those lay these engines. So these engines are areas that, I, to repeat, are these cross-cutting um, technologies that apply to all of our apex programs. In fact, more broadly, they apply to all the mission sets of the QHSR. And that's really why the engines were set up. So I'll give you a couple of examples. We've got data analytics, right? modeling and simulation. Um, an interesting one, behavioral, economic, and social science, communication and networking. Right? So then there's others. But these are the ones that we have that we've set up in order to, again, more effectively use our investment dollars. Because while every program uses these, you don't want to have an independent instantiation of these within each program when each program could borrow from these if they're used across all of them. Well, you, you've pointed out that the visionary goals you identified are decades out. You have a strategic plan, which is about a five-year time frame. All of these pretty much give insights into your strategy and how you're going to take S&T to where it needs to be. But none of this will happen, I think you underscore this, without your people. Um, so what are you doing to create a strong or establish a strong and healthy leadership culture within S&T? And how are you addressing some of the employee morale issues you're dealing with? So again, work in progress. Um, I think um, one of the principles you asked me about my particular um, take on leadership is empowering the workforce. And I think one of the best ways to do that is to be more transparent 
in, in why decisions are made, what decisions are made, and more inclusive in how those decisions are being made. Uh, so we're trying to do that. We've also developed an employee council um, where we actually asked employees to be part of this council and to give recommendations, suggestions, concerns, et cetera, um, so, we can better, we, so we can have a better pulse on actually what's going on in the organization. We've also um, funded a, um, a root cause analysis study to try to better understand what some of the challenges are in areas of morale. And based on that study, uh, we are developing action teams to actually address those concerns that were brought up. We have a, I have a weekly address that I send out to try to communicate what, um, what I'm learning from uh, the front office, from the secretary, deputy secretary, et cetera, and what some of uh, my priorities are. We've set up uh, multimodal, if you will, ways of com- uh, for, the, for staff to communicate back with, with me and, and my front office, some of their concerns. So I think a lot of, a lot of what we're trying to do is, is, is transparency and, and enhanced communication within the organization. What is the future hold for research and development within the Homeland Security Enterprise? We will ask Dr. Reggie Brothers, Undersecretary for Science and Technology at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. In a world inundated with all kinds of information, timely, relevant, and more predictive data can drive better decision-making. Law enforcement agencies are at the forefront in leveraging data and using innovative software to generate predictions that help police prevent crime. What is predictive policing? How can using analytics make us safer? Check out the IBM Center report, Predictive Policing, Preventing Crime with Data and Analytics by Jen Bachner, and find out. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. What do agency leaders need to know about the federal acquisition process? What are some of the key federal procurement trends? And how can agency leaders overcome today's acquisition challenges? Check out the new Center Report, A Guide for Agency Leaders on Federal Acquisition, by Trevor Brown and find out. The report offers practical recommendations for improving federal acquisition. Download your free copy of A Guide for Agency Leaders on Federal Acquisition at businessofgovernment.org and find out how the business of government is not business as usual. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Reggie Brothers, Undersecretary for Science and Technology at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Also joining us from IBM is Angela Carrington. So, uh, Dr. Brothers, uh, what is needed for government to operate at the pace of innovation and be a stronger partner in a digital age? So I think part of the, part of the issue is being aware of, of innovation, and uh, the only way we can operate at the pace of innovation is to, to be part of it and to be part of the community that is innovating. Um, and that's why I was talking so much about this outreach to the, all the sectors, all the parts of the um, S&T ecosystem. Um, I think it's, it's um, myopic to think that um, government um, really has an understanding just within itself of what's going on across the, the different domains of, of, of technology, particularly in this age where you're seeing convergence of different areas of discipline for mathematics, biology, physics, engineering, et cetera, they're leading to such great advancements that we're seeing right now. So I think the major key is the government, people in the government, because it is all about people again, people in the government have to be exposed to and have continuous con- continuing dialogue with innovators across the entire ecosystem. 
So DHS, more than many federal agencies, and especially more so than DOD, you talked about DOD earlier as an example, is dependent upon commercially available off-the-shelf products to achieve DHS's mission, your mission. So how do such efforts serve as accelerators, and how do those prize competitions assist you in this area? Sure. So I think I mentioned the phrase, um, strategically shape our shelf. And so this shelf, again, being the commercial commercial world. And one of the interesting conversations I had when I was uh, actually in Silicon Valley last time was with s- some folks who said, you know, why do you think we have so many um, uh, dating apps and we have so many uh, restaurant finding apps? He said, it's, it's because, you know, the, that's what's interesting to the people who actually develop the apps, right? But then the, con- the conversation continued and said, you know, these are smart people. And these men and women want to solve hard and important problems. So if you bring the hard and important problems to them, they'll solve them. They just don't necessarily have them right now. That's not their background. That's not their context. They're their reality. So I think that um, by us engaging in accelerators, by us engaging in these prize challenges, what we're doing fundamentally is bringing a different problem set, a hard, important problem set to these creative people, and that's what they want to do. Well, Doctor, I I just wanted to get a sense of uh, the S&T National Laboratories and the Center of Excellence. Can you tell us what they are and how are you... How have you sought to refine and expand their capabilities? So our national laboratories, uh, we have an office of national laboratories. We have five national laboratories. Essentially, these laboratories, um, we use them to um, forward our research and development efforts. The way we're trying to, um, you mentioned, mentioned refine, is this has to do with the whole alignment strategy. And I think, and this is, is true of the Centers of Excellence as well, is how do we do a better job of saying, of taking the core competencies of our laboratories, of which we have great core competencies, and have them really start addressing the, the focal elements of the agenda of the rest of the organization. And that's what we're doing right now. And we're seeing a, a tremendous response. The Centers of Excellence is the same thing. I think I've been really amazed at our Centers of Excellence. And I say that because I think that um, our, our Office of University Programs has done a wonderful job of developing a research strategy along with our component stakeholders with the university. I, I don't know if this is the only time it's done, but it's the only time I've seen it done. We're at the beginning of the, um, of, of, of the work with these centers of excellence. A research development strategy is actually developed where the operational components are in the room and the university professors and students are engaged. So you end up with a research program that isn't just science for the sake of science, but it's actually science that's applied to problems of homeland security directly. I think that's fascinating. And I think um, that's, that's the type of alignment that we're looking for across all of our resources, which gets back to the Titan question you asked earlier. How do we have this, this bulk of resources that are fundamentally aligned so that our program managers, our scientists, our engineers can do their jobs the best they can? Dr. Brothers, can you tell us more about your international engagement efforts and what about your efforts to develop an international platform to discuss responder challenges and issues? Sure. So right now we have 13 bilateral relationships, um, engagements, if you will. Um, we just call them bilats for short. Um, uh, I think, again, this goes back to the same conversation we've had with alignment. I think we've got wonderful relationships with our partners. Um, and we're right now trying to make sure that we, um, we can have more impact with these kind of relationships. Um, whether bilateral, trilateral, etc., we're trying to align these relationships with our other priorities better. And, I, and I, I've, in the past year, I've seen that actually happen. 
I think we've found that our, our partners are engaged, they're excited, and we are showing, um, in a way we can quantify, real benefits to these kind of relationships, to, to all the countries, to the countries that we're working with. So we're excited about that. So, Dr. Brothers, what advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? Um, I can just give a, uh, advice from my personal perspective, obviously, and, and my personal, um, the outcomes I've seen. And I've been excited by it. You know, as I said earlier, I think I've, I've had the opportunity, the blessing to have played in, in a lot of different parts of this SMT ecosystem. And this is an exciting place because what it allows you to do is get a tremendous overview of the strategic priorities of the country and have an impact at that level. And I don't know any other place you can have that. You can take those insights, those goals, back into industry, back into academia, to make those organizations um, uh, more effective. And I think what I have found um, when I've been in industry and academia has been there's this, this desire to understand how people's work is relevant. I think when you talk to creative people, what's most important is much, very much important to them is are they doing important work? Is there important relevant? Do they see a difference they've made in the world based on their work? The, the context that you get by having these kind of positions is unparalleled, just unparalleled. And I think it's that context that makes this so exciting, so interesting, and so important for people to, uh, to strive for. I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy day and coming today to talk with us. But more importantly, Angela and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. And how can folks learn more about what you're doing? We're, we're going to have a number of different types of engagements. And I've talked a lot about Homeland Security Industrial Base, talked a lot about the S&T ecosystem. And as such, we're reaching out. So you'll see us at places where you wouldn't have previously seen us. We'll be at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. We'll be the Internet of Things Conference. We'll be the RSA Conference. Last year, we spoke at South by Southwest. Tech Expo. So what you'll see is that we're trying to engage communities of creative people that we haven't previously engaged. So look out for us, uh, because we'll be looking out for you. Thank you. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Dr. Reggie Brothers, Undersecretary for Science and Technology at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. My co-host from IBM has been Angela Carrington. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How is the Data Act being implemented? What are the requirements of the Data Act? What are some of the key challenges in implementing the Data Act? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Christina Ho, Deputy Assistant Secretary, Accounting Policy and Financial Transparency, U.S. Department of the Treasury. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.